You're listening to The 66 Podcast, where we go through the books of the Bible one at a time. I'm Andrew Kingsley with Drew Kaiser, as always. And today we're excited because we are finishing 1 Timothy. We both really enjoyed studying 1 Timothy, and we'll get to continue on in this kind of work because next week we'll actually jump into 2 Timothy. But for today, we're going to finish up, and we're on the final chapter, and that is chapter 6. And Paul is closing this first letter that he's writing to Timothy. And he's going to give him, as you can see, uh, some other letters that he writes, maybe a few final instructions here. And the way that uh, Drew has outlined this for us today, we have two key phrases in our text to take a look at today. And Drew is going to give those to us. All right. So uh, the f- they both have to do with time, sort of. Um, the first phrase is verse 17, where he's talking to the rich, and he's talking to them, he addresses them as the rich in this present age, which is interesting. I mean, why didn't he just say, as for the rich, and let that carry on throughout all generations? But he says, the rich in this present age, and uh, the literal word there is like eon, or generation of time. So it has to do with the customs, the trends, the ways of people, and the special temptations for their day and age that they face at that time. The rich of those days dealt with different problems, I I suppose, than the rich of these days. And so the first phrase there is the present age. When you hear the present age, I want you to think about the temporal passing generation that we now live in, uh, the culture, the the time of of that that changes. Uh, now, over against that, you have the phrase in verse fifteen, at the proper time, which is not tied to the Greek word chronos that has to do with schedules and calendars and time appointments, those kinds of things, deadlines. But uh, kairos, kairos has to do with the opportune time, the perfect moment, the the rightness of the time. And uh, it's applied there to the second coming. But we're going to look at these phrases this way. In this last chapter of 1 Timothy, Paul is going to warn Timothy about problems that are special to his day and age. In other words, problems of the present age. But instead of trying to change the present age, he's going to tell Christians, namely Timothy, to live in view of the proper time instead of the present age. I feel like I should illustrate that a little, Andrew. And you tell me if it makes sense. Okay, so like we, we have two choices. We can be a part of our society and let them just follow. We can just follow the trends of the current society. Let the waves take us where they will. Let the winds blow us in whatever direction they blow. Or we can be countercultural and live in view of the second coming of Christ who will come at the present at the proper time. And so Timothy is being instructed, you're in a present age, it's full of problems, it's full of temptations and sin, but you can live in the present age with respect to the proper time. Okay. That makes that, sense, yeah. Is that all right? Okay. Yeah. So the first thing we're going to look at are characteristics of the present age, the temporal passing cultural age in which Timothy lived. That's different from ours, but we have our challenges too. And then secondly, we're going to look at uh, 
those timeless truths that belong to the present, the, the proper time. So uh, we'll try it and see if it works. It's kind of a new way of looking at 1 Timothy 6. I wanted to try it out on the podcast before I got in a pulpit or something and, and did this. So here are the characteristics, basically four, no, basically three, to keep it simple, as if we I can do this at this point. But to keep it simple, we'll look at three. And the first one is slavery. Now, a lot of people struggle with slavery uh, being mentioned in the New Testament as a fact of life. But when you look at it in terms of the present age, verse 17, you realize that Paul is not promoting slavery, endorsing slavery, trying to get slavery started, or abolishing slavery. It's just a fact of his current generation that is not a part of our generation. So it fits right in there with that idea of the present age. Here's verses 1 and 2 of 1 Timothy 6. Let all who are under a yoke as slaves... Now here he's not talking in terms of being a Christian servant. He's literally Mm -hmm. talking about forced labor. All who are under a yoke as slaves regard their own masters as worthy of all honor, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather... They must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. Okay, we're going to have to come back and discuss that. But that's the first example. There was slavery in that present age. It's not a part of our present age, at least not in this form, but it was a part of their present age. In a moment, we'll we'll bring bring to light how Paul wanted Christians to deal with that problem. Okay, so the second characteristic of the present age given by Paul is different doctrine. Um, Verse 3, if anyone teaches a different doctrine and does not agree with the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness, he is puffed up, etc., etc. Now, he gives things that infect, examples of things that infect different doctrine. And I'll just list these. These are found in verses 4 and 5. Uh, verse 4, he's puffed up with pride. He is uh, he has a craving for controversy. Um, that craving for controversy leads to all kinds of things like uh, quarrels about words, envy, dissension, slander, evil suspicions, constant friction. Uh, the next thing he mentions as a part of this different doctrine is a depraved mind. And... Uh, Then he mentions truth deprivation. Look at the end of verse 5. Deprived of truth. So they they don't have that. And then greed, which we'll say more about in a moment. But he has a lot to say about money and greed. It's interesting that it all comes out of this warning against the different doctrine of the present age. Yeah, which has been a constant theme throughout this letter, right? Yeah, it has, really. Um, Interesting... And, and other letters of Paul, like Philippians, mm-hmm. I'm thinking about where people were uh, preaching out of rivalry and conceit. And then yeah. especially, was it Second Corinthians, where they're, they're peddlers of yep. God's Word? Mm-hmm. Um, so you could evidently make a pretty good living back then, and you can now, by teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And mm-hmm. uh, that's what these guys were doing. Uh, let me say, let's see where I was going. Also, I think in, under this category of um, different doctrine that is typical of the present age, you've got verses 20 and 21. 
where he says, Timothy, guard the deposit entrusted to you. Avoid the irreverent babble and contradictions of what is falsely called knowledge. For by professing it, some have swerved from the faith. So there are a lot of verses on that, the different doctrine that belongs to that present age. We, we're dealing with other false doctrines today. I, I know a little, you know, some people, for example, say that they dealt with this, uh, this the beginnings of Gnosticism. Mm -hmm. Maybe our listeners have heard of that, maybe not. It's basically the idea, at least the way John puts it in his letters, the idea that Christ and Jesus were not the same person. Yeah. That Christ did not come in the flesh but he had some kind of relationship with the human Jesus and um, didn't die on the cross. or You know, there are all kinds of versions of Gnosticism. But that was a problem they dealt with then that thankfully we don't deal with today. But we have plenty of false doctrines we need to beware of that are different from the sound doctrine of the Bible. Let's go to riches. This is the third characteristic of the present age. Riches. And uh, we'll back up to verse 5 where he mentions it in connection with the different doctrine. But then he kind of brings him in verse 6 to talking strictly about greed and riches. He says, There is great gain in godliness with contentment, for we brought nothing into the world and we cannot take anything out of the world. If we have food and clothing, with these we will be content. But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires, that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Um, he goes on down in verse 17. Well, I'll get to that in the next part. But uh, finally, well, those are the three things, okay? We could break it down in different ways, but the present age in which Timothy lived, the cultural trends that were being followed included slavery, different doctrine, and greed for riches. Now, we don't deal with slavery as he did then, but do we have slavery? You know, lately I've been very disturbed by reports of human trafficking. Evidently, mm -hmm. even in the United States, people are being smuggled as property and used as yeah. slaves. What about different doctrines? We've already said that while we might not have the same kinds of doctrines that Timothy had to deal with, we have problems with false doctrine today. Uh, do we struggle with greed? Definitely in America, a consumer society, we are eaten up by materialism. Yep. We should be able to relate to these things even though they come from an age 2,000 years ago. It's funny how things... Mm -hmm. It's not funny. It's sad how things never change. But what we have to deal with this, what uh, Paul is trying to arm Timothy with and what he's trying to arm us with is an understanding of the timeless truths that belong to the proper time of the second coming, that things that belong to the hope that we have that there is coming a day when all history will end, when the world will be destroyed when Jesus will come back with his saints, when the resurrection shall occur and we stand before God in judgment and live eternally with God. In view of that, there are several truths that will help us navigate these waters of our present age as they did the waters of, of Timothy's present age. 
And so I'll go through these rather quickly so we'll have time to discuss some other things. But when it comes to the slavery, for example, the first timeless truth is we must protect the name of God and His church and His doctrine. Because he says, respect your owners, respect your manners, verse 1. Masters, verse 1. Um, as worthy of all honor. Not because they are worthy of all honor, not because slavery is right, but because um, so that the name of God and the teaching may not be reviled. So what he's saying is the name of God and the teaching are more important even than your personal freedom. And so stay in the system which you cannot overthrow at the present time and you know, show people the love of God. Show people how you can live for another world instead of this present age. Now, there's another timeless truth that comes out against slavery, and that is, you know, the dignity of every human being, slave or free. He calls them brethren, believers, and beloved. You got the three B's mm-hmm. there, and that's in verse 2, I think. Yes. Yeah. Um, now, here's the third one. It's tied into the different doctrines. Sound words, verse 3. He mentions um, the sound words of our Lord Jesus Christ and the teaching that accords with godliness. Some teachings are healthy. Some teachings are unhealthy. How do you get rid of the unhealthy teaching? You emphasize the healthy teaching. That's that's what he's saying. Um, I'm just moving quickly through here, Andrew. Butt in anytime. Oh, yeah. you know, I'm not trying to run over you here. No, you go right ahead. You, you are important to me, Andrew. <laughs> Okay, uh, number four, uh, how do you deal with the materialism? How do you deal with the greed? Contentment, right? Uh, verses yeah. six and following. We brought nothing into the world. We cannot take anything out of the world, but if we have food and clothing with these, we'll be content. If you can learn to be happy with what you have, that's not to say that being rich is wrong. Mm-hmm. Um, he talks about that in a little bit later. Uh, in fact, let's go there. In verse 19, he speaks of treasure in heaven. So he says to the rich in verse 17, As for the rich in this present age, charge them not to be haughty or to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches, but on God who richly provides us with everything to enjoy. So he's saying you're rich because God mm-hmm. gave this to you. He's not saying yeah. being rich is inherently evil. Mm-hmm. But he says to them, that they need to do good, to be rich in good works, to be generous and ready to share, thus storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future. See, mm-hmm. this is this is the idea we're talking about. You live for that um, proper time. Yeah. You live for the time of the second coming. You don't live for the present age. Now, in the present age, you may have joy. You may have enjoyment of riches, but your life isn't about that. Your life is about what is to come about the future. Yeah, I think there's a lot of a lot of good stuff in there for the application when we come back to apply to talk about, you know, the responsibility we have with some of these riches that we all have. Right. So there's Definitely. a lot wound up into that. Yeah. And that that's going to be really relevant even though we're in a different age. Mm-hmm. Um, the last the last timeless truth is that there is a real life, and it's not defined by riches or slavery or different doctrines. He says, after he says in verse 19, storing up treasure for themselves is a good foundation for the future, he says, so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. You know, living for this world and this age is not really living. 
True life comes from the recognition that Jesus is your Savior, obedience to His commandments, living for that future age, knowing that, you know, if the world takes all of my riches away and takes all my beauty away and takes all my power away, I still have the greatest thing, which is eternal life with God when Jesus comes back. Yeah. Um, you want to say any more about the present age versus the proper time? Well, I think that final thing you just mentioned um, really kind of sums it all up, right? Take hold of that, which is truly life. So in all these situations, you know, remember what is. And he talked about, I think the example of riches and contentment is a, is a good one uh, to define kind of the, the idea here between the present age and then the proper time of, you know, keep in mind that although whatever these things are, remember what is truly life. You know, you are in, let's say for the those in the first few verses, the first two verses of the chapter, if you are uh, a servant, if you are a slave, you might want to rebel and overthrow. Remember what is truly life. And here's the principle, you know, that you mentioned. If you're, uh, it might be tempting to fall into this trap of teaching false things in order to make money, in order to have high standing in your community, whatever. Uh, but remember what is truly life. Hold yeah. on to the words of Christ. And then the same thing with riches. It might be tempting to become rich, but remember what is truly life, the treasures that lie in the next life. Yeah, you know, I almost did not include that in the list of things that have to do with the proper time or the second coming because yeah. it did seem to kind of be an umbrella over all the other timeless truths. But yeah. I went ahead and included it. And and some of our uh, listeners who've studied this chapter already may be saying, hey, wait a minute, Drew and Andrew skipped the section on themselves, you know, uh, verses 11 through 16 is basically a job description for preachers. And maybe somebody thinks we're trying to, you know, squeeze, wiggle out of that and, and not, <laughs> not, you know, bring anything on ourselves. But that's yeah. not at all what I'm trying to do. I think it's neat to go back. Neat. What am I talking about here? <laughs> I, I think it is good now for us to go back to that job description there to look at the man, what a man looks like who is supposed to preach these timeless truths in the present age. Uh, it takes a special person who has to practice a lot of self-control and discipline. And so that's why that is in the middle of this. It's almost like, you know, the form of the letter demonstrates the idea here. Timothy is in the middle of this between the present age and the timeless truths trying to hold them together, which is mm -hmm. something that's very difficult to do. So we'll read that beginning of verse 11. But as for you, O man of God, flee these things. He's talking about the craving for materialism and love of money. Pursue righteousness, godliness, faith, love, steadfastness, gentleness. Fight the good fight of faith. Take hold of the eternal life to which you were called and about which you made the good confession in the presence of many witnesses. I charge you in the presence of God who gives life to all things and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, 
whom no one has ever seen nor can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. So that's what Timothy's got to do mm-hmm. to pull these two things together. Um, let's let's take a little break here, and when we come back, there are some interesting things we want to go over for a few minutes. Okay, we're back, and we want to dig deeper into a few things. And the first one is right there at the front, and it's probably pretty obvious. We want to talk a little bit about what is Paul trying to say about slavery here in verses 1 and 2 of chapter 6. Like Drew mentioned in the reading, there's a lot of people that have a big problem with the fact that Paul brings up slavery here, and he does it again in Ephesians 5, where he's walking through mm-hmm. the different roles of the household. And the household... Philemon. Yeah, the the friend of Paul, right. who he writes about his slave, and and you know critics they love these verses because mm-hmm. they they're they're just looking for a quick pot shot they can take at the Bible, and you know see they, the Bible favors slavery, yeah. But I think we can make a case that it doesn't. Fact, yeah, it's not that hard if you're reading it objectively. Yeah, and if you take you know all those passages that we just talked about, if you take them together, that's where you get Paul's. Inspired by the Holy Spirit, that's where you get the full scope on the uh, the teachings on slavery at the time and the way those households were constructed. And Drew, you can correct me in this if I'm wrong, but you had the parents, you had the kids, and you had the servants in the houses. And those mm-hmm. were bas- that was basically the structure of the traditional house at the time, and they were considered. There's a lot of uh, argument to say how they were considered as part of the family, but that's outside of the scope of here. What we're looking at here, though, is Paul's instructions for them. Well, let me let me say something about what you just said, okay. if, if it's okay. Um, so, I don't I don't think we should address, and I'm not saying you were doing this, but I don't think we should address slavery by saying, well, they were taken care of, they were well cared for, they had a roof over their head, and three meals mm-hmm. a day. Yeah, you know they they were like part of the family because the the biggest issue about slavery beyond the abuse and and removal from homes and splitting of families that may or may not have occurred then, but has definitely occurred in American history. Besides all of that, if you clean it up and you make it make life comfortable for these slaves, you're still looking at them and trading them as property yeah. instead of human beings with their own dignity mm-hmm. equal to the humans who supposedly own them. Yeah. So you get past all the creature comforts and the abuse and you try to make their condition living conditions nice you're still saying that they're not worth a full human being yeah let that's, me qualify that's that what's wrong by with saying slavery above i bring else. all that up to say how you know what the culture is like with slavery yeah you know how how much of a part of their culture it was how ingrained right, yes. it was into the society so yeah, and I, I knew you were doing that. Exactly I, right. I wasn't saying that you were saying, hey, as long as they have yeah. access to comfortable bathroom facilities. and yeah. No, I, you weren't saying that. I just wanted to be clear that we both understand the philosophical problem with slavery. Yeah. You know, and, and I think that's where Paul hits it the hardest, but I'm, I'm interrupting so what do you, you. Go ahead. So what, well, I'll just ask you, what, what here in verses 1 and 2, how do you think Paul adds to the discussion 
on slavery. I think we could go through, and maybe we should do this, I think we could go through every passage where slavery is mentioned and show how Paul, or the Spirit through Paul, in an amazing way, just ripped the philosophy of slavery out of society. So here, uh, he's saying to believers that they are brothers, your slaves are brothers with the masters, and they are believers with the masters, and they are beloved of the masters, Mm -hmm. or beloved of God, you know, probably. But he uses those three Bs, brothers, believers, beloved, all three of which either put the the slave on equal ground or even higher ground. When it comes to love, you're putting the other person above yourself. Mm-hmm. And so he elevates the slaves here. Um, and and I'm, I realize I may have gotten them mixed up a little because he is telling the servants... Um, who benefit by their good service are believers and and beloved. Who's he saying are the believers and beloved there in verse 2? The masters or the servants? Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers, that the masters are brothers, I guess. Rather, they must serve all the better since those who benefit by their good service, in other words, the masters, Mm -hmm. are believers and beloved. So he calls the masters brothers, believers, beloved. All right, fine. But if the master is a brother, so is the slave. And if the slave is doing this because they're believers, then he's saying you're equal in the church. You can go back to Galatians 3.28 where he says there's no slave or free in the kingdom of God. Yeah. It reminds me. I need to go back and uh, fact check something I said earlier. It's Ephesians 6, not Ephesians 5. Right. Paul gives the instructions to bond servants. And it's the the term that he uses here in verse 5 in Ephesians 6, he says, Bond servants, same term that's over in First Timothy, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by the way of eye service as people pleasers, but as bond servants of Christ. Again, remember what is truly life. Yeah, the, here's the reality. Yeah. Right. The reality behind it is uh, serve with a sincere heart as you would Christ, not by eye service. We already read that. Verse 7, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to man, knowing that whatever good anyone does, this he will receive back from the Lord, whether he's a bondservant or free. Now in verse 9, masters, now what's the instruction for masters? Do the same to them. Yeah, so that's revolutionary. Yeah. I mean, nobody in Rome would have ever said that slaves have to treat their masters the way the masters have to treat the slaves. Right, and like you said, I really liked that phrase you said when we started this discussion, um, how scripture kind of, what did you say, it takes the philosophy behind slavery and rips it out or something. I can't yeah, remember what you Yeah, that was, that was in pretty good, wasn't it? Yeah, it was good. It was, we, we'll have to go back and listen and quote it. Uh, but that's exactly what this does. I mean, maybe, just maybe I'll tweet words. that. Yeah, you should just, tweet that. From, just tweet it out there. From the, uh, yeah, all our tweets will love that. From the, uh, <laughs> from the podcast account. That way I don't have to come up with something clever. Uh-huh. Uh, okay. But, I mean, you're exactly right. Verse 9, totally revolutionized. Masters, do the same to them. And then he adds, stop your threatening, knowing that he is both their master and yours in heaven, and there's no partiality with him. I mean, that seals the deal right there. 
You and the slave, you and your slave that you presumably own, belong to the same master, and he sees no difference between you. So he says all of that in the context of telling servants to obey their masters. He's not telling them to obey their masters because slavery is right. He's telling them to obey their masters so that the higher priority of no reproach on God or or his kingdom can Mm -hmm. be carried out. Because rebellious slaves in those days died. Many times they were crucified. They were beaten to death. Mm They died in infamy, and their their testimony was lost in that. Mm-hmm. And uh, so, you know, you put your own personal justice aside so that the truth about God can, can come out, and then God will take justice for you in mm-hmm. the end. I mean, that's the way it looks. That's the way they look at it. Uh, Colossians 3 is another passage on this. Verse 22, slaves obey in everything those who are your earthly masters, not by way of eye service as people pleasers, but with sincerity of heart, fearing the Lord. Whatever you do, work heartily as for the Lord and not for men. You're not working for a master. You're working for God. Uh, Knowing that from the Lord, you will receive the inheritance as your reward. You are serving the Lord Christ. And the, this is what I just said. The wrongdoer will be paid back for the wrong he has done, and there is no partiality. Now, wait a minute. Who's the wrongdoer in this? Who's the wrongdoer? All of a sudden, he starts calling somebody a wrongdoer. He's referring to the slave owner. Yeah. So he's saying slavery is wrong. But he's doing it in a much more nuanced way than we saw in the abolitionist movement of the United States or some other way, which I'm not criticizing those movements. I'm just saying there's a difference in the way the New Testament handled it and the way that, you know, political activists might handle it. Yeah. It's just a different format. Yeah, certainly a lot to discuss on that, and we could spend, I mean, how many episodes discussing that, but... Should um, we, wait, wait, should we mention Philemon also? Okay, the, yeah. Because yeah. I'm Sorry, wanting to show that in every slavery passage in the New Testament, and there aren't that many... I think when we get to Philemon, we will have covered them all. In every one, there is this subtle, revolutionary, upending philosophy that destroyed slavery when yeah. it was given time to, to marinate in the present age, as we've been calling yeah. it. So don't, the thing in Philemon, Philemon is a letter. We covered. We have a podcast on Philemon, don't we? Yes, we do. Okay, so Philemon was a friend of Paul's who worshipped at the church at Colossae. Uh, he had a slave named Onesimus. Onesimus ran away to Rome. Paul converted him while in Rome and is sending Onesimus back with this letter to his his former master. And he's re- pleading with Philemon to receive Onesimus back, verse 16, no longer as a slave, but more than a slave as a beloved brother, especially to me, and how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So he's saying, he's not a slave anymore. You're a Christian, so guess what? You have to accept him back as a brother because God doesn't show partiality. So how many were those? Four passages on slavery, and every Mm -hmm. one of them destroys slavery. It doesn't support it or endorse it in any way. Yeah. Yeah, I think think we did a pretty good job of laying that case out. Well, I think we can pat ourselves on the back. Yeah, all right. 
Yeah. There's no um, one else in here to do that for us. Right. Our producer's not here today. Mm-hmm. Actually, he is here. Um, both of them are here. Um, okay. So the next thing we want to move on to, uh, Drew, I think we have mentioned in this think section. Uh, well, what was the next think thing? There's so many things we wanted to do and apply. Uh, we oh, yeah. We talk about... Verse 14 and 15. Yeah, that... Yeah, okay, so there's confusing. an interesting problem here. And well, it's not really a problem, but there's something that, that gives us reason, I guess, to think about it here. So in verse, we'll back up to verse 13 to get the full thought. So this is the this is the passage where we have that phrase, the proper time. In verse 13, I charge you in the presence of God, who gives life to all things, and of Christ Jesus, who in his testimony before Pontius Pilate made the good confession, to keep the commandment unstained and free from reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will display at the proper time. So let's go ahead and address it here before we keep reading. Verse 15, that he, question is, what does that he apply to? Does that go to Jesus or should that pronoun be attributed to God? So basically, are you going to read this as uh, until the appearing of our Lord Jesus, verse 15, which Jesus will display at the proper time? Or is it which God will display at the proper time? He who is blessed and only sovereign, King of kings, Lord of lords, who alone has immortality, who dwells in unapproachable light, whom no one has ever seen or can see, to him be honor and eternal dominion. Amen. And if you read in the ESV like this, um, it does look like maybe that pronoun goes back to Jesus. But actually, if you're reading the NIV, it inserts God into that verse where the pronoun is. And I think there's one, um, and again, this is without a big study of the Greek language here, but I think through the context in verse 15, you find the answer, who is going to display the coming of Christ at the proper time? I mean, in Matthew, Jesus himself says, you know, not even the son Mm -hmm. knows the hour in which he's going to return, only the father. So I think even that little phrase, again, without a study of the Greek to say, what, what does this pronoun belong to? But the translators of the NIV, apparently, who are probably a lot smarter than I am with regards to translation matters, I would assume, um, they've attributed this pronoun to God. And then also, you know, there's language here that looks like it applies to the Father, the one who's going to display Jesus at the proper time, the one who is going to to bring this second coming about. Uh, a lot of phrases that are attached to God. Um and then, Drew, there's this one phrase you mentioned, yeah. the unapproachable light. Well, that and also the fact that no one has ever seen or can see. Yeah. I have trouble reconciling that with statements Jesus made. Like in John 14, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. So, you know, he, uh, when he appeared to Thomas after the resurrection in John 20, uh, he said... You know, do you believe because you have seen me? And, of course, everybody knows that people saw Jesus. They saw him when he ascended into heaven. And so that makes it difficult to make Jesus the object of uh, this doxology here in the middle of chapter 6. Now, while you were going through the possibilities, the Father or Jesus, I wondered if maybe there are three possibilities. Could it be either the Father or Jesus or the Godhead. You know, maybe that's why it's so difficult to yeah, to interpret this. And I don't know, it does it really matter? I mean, some of the details that are revealed about God are interesting here. 
Yeah. But I think whatever you say of God here would be the same. You could say the same of the Father. Uh, there's just some some problems, namely this one that that we haven't seen him. Problems with the idea that we're talking about Jesus here. Yeah. Because you know, G- God. Oh, it was John chapter one, right? John one eighteen, where John says, "No one has ever seen God." But then he continues that by saying, "I want to get it right, so I'm turning over there." Uh, no one has ever seen God. Uh, the only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. So He's calling both God the Father and the Son God. Yeah. But then He says, "One you've never seen, and the other that you've seen, He He has made." The invisible God known. Yeah. Jesus has made him known. So I, I don't see how you put John one eighteen with first Timothy six without saying that this is about God the Father. Yeah, I think there's God a lot in of, Yeah, I think I think the evidence really points to that doxology being about God. And we're not trying to take away certainly at all from the deity of Christ. Like you said, a lot of these things do apply to Jesus, sovereign, King of Kings, Lord of Lords. Uh yeah, that's things. why that's why the interpretive problem is there because Jesus is God. So, yeah, and what I know some people are listening. They're saying, "Well, how many gods do we have? We have one God, three distinct persons, and one divine essence." Yeah. Um, it, it yes, it's mind blowing. It's really difficult. Uh, we try not to shy away from things like that on the sixty six. But the the other side of that is if we don't skip it, sometimes. In discussing it, we make a big mess out of it. I don't think yeah. we're doing that now, but it is it is hard to discuss some of these things. It's difficult, but when I read through it, I've always wondered about that little doxology. You yeah. know, I've always wondered. Hmm. Um, and I think, you know, it seals the deal when he says, no one has ever seen or can see. Yeah. Um, Dwelling in unapproachable light, you know that some of this is going to change, also, right? Because in the book of Revelation, we get this picture of heaven as there's no sun because God and the Lamb will provide the light and will dwell in the light forever. That's definitely a different setting than what we're reading about here, which describes things as they are in the Christian age. Yeah, yeah, I, th- I think you're right. So let's. Um, I guess we can. We can give our brains a break and quit thinking so hard for a second, and then we'll come back and do a little bit of application. We're back for part three of the 66. Too too much? Too dramatic? Okay. Very Um, professional. I don't have a very good radio Our sponsors radio voice. will be proud. Yes. Yeah, they You will. and I are both very proud. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, our regular listeners know what we do here in this section. We attempt to give you some lessons from the material that we've been talking about. And uh, we're in 1 Timothy chapter 6, and it's a pretty practical chapter. There's a lot in here. I'm going to start with lesson number one. Lesson number one I'll put it this way. It's not about you. It's not about you. These slaves deserved more than what they had gotten in life. The present age had wronged them. Injustices had been committed against them. And yet Paul says to them, uh, 
respect your masters. Don't be disrespectful um, so that the name of God may not be reviled. Mm-hmm. It's about God, not you. If you disrespect and get thrown in jail or get beaten to death or whatever happens, that's going to bring, unfortunately, in that particular age, a reproach upon God. And so don't do that. Work yeah. within the confines of your society. Okay, I just had so, a thought. Let me know if this doesn't apply or not. But it's kind of, you know, I'm thinking of when Jesus came and the whole scenario of the people thought they were going. Because from the Jewish standpoint, were they not being wronged by the Roman government? Yeah, they were. I so, would say they were, yeah. So they're thinking they're being oppressed and they're being wronged, you know, as a nation by being, you know, under rule of this other other empire. And when Jesus comes, they're thinking it's about them. You know, like, okay, finally yeah. we're gonna be liberated, which is which is what made me think of this from the from the discussion on slavery, because uh, the Jews as a whole thought they were in, you know, uh, subjection to the Romans. And so they're thinking, finally, we're going to be liberated. And then Jesus, you know, his whole message is, look, it's not about you. Mm-hmm. You know, pretty much I'm thinking of what he winds up doing. And when he's talking to Pilate, you know, he says, my kingdom is not of this world. He says, hey, this is not about me. This is not about, you know, the Jewish nation, the political nation. This is about God. Mm-hmm. You know, so even the Jews are asked to swallow, you know, their pride and realize this is not about whether or not it's fair for the Jews to be under uh, subjection to the Romans. This is about everyone being free from their sin. This is about something a lot more important, something bigger than your current political situation. I mean, is that comfortable? Yeah, and I've been, there's a phrase bouncing around in my head. I'm trying to get it right before I say it out loud. But, um, you know, when, when Jesus died on the cross, was that not... God saying it's not about me. Oh yeah. But the problem with that is it still was, but it wasn't. I so now I'm really having trouble <laughs> because I mean we could not be in God's presence with our sin. Yeah. So that problem, that tension, is created by the fact that God doesn't share His glory with another. There's only one God. Uh, he will not tolerate sin and and unrighteousness, but yeah. he sacrificed himself with Jesus' death on the cross, which was a very unselfish thing to do. I think we can all agree. Right. Yeah. So that was about God, but it was in service to our interests. Yeah, so I think Jesus is in the position of, by his obedience to the Father, he is glorifying the Father, right? Yes. Because he had, you know, the New Testament indicates that if he had wanted to avoid that scenario, he could have. Yeah. But but he he but he was glorified as well by his own words. Right. Yeah. He is. He's exalted by that. So what he does, he's glorifying God, but also. He is, who is he making the sacrifice for, ultimately? Right. Who gets that benefit? You know, who is, who's getting their sins paid for? It's us. Yeah. So in a way, it's about us. That's a really interesting question. In a way, it's about us, but in a way, it's also about God. It glorifies God, but it forgives us, 
And it's uh, that's a good point. It's, yeah. But either way, it makes this point of kind of to get us back here in First Timothy 6. You know, it, it makes the point of what's important is what's important are the things of God. Yes. Those are the things and that so, are important. And we can carry this very practically into our own present age where right. maybe we're not slaves, but we're in a bad job. Yeah. Maybe we're in a difficult family situation, a difficult church. Uh, we're not getting our way when it comes to a relationship that we are in. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think we're, it is good for us to say to ourselves, it's not about me. What can I do in this situation and make it about God so that I right. do not, in the words of Paul, I do not revile the name of God? Uh, does that mean I have to respect somebody that I don't want to respect? Maybe. No. Does it mean I need to get a different job? Maybe. You know, it, case by case basis, yeah. we ought to apply this thinking. And in making it about God, we actually benefit ourselves. Yeah. Maybe that's the better way to phrase this instead of it's not about you. Yeah, because it's, if it's about God, it helps you. Right. Maybe that's the best way to put it. Like, what is God's whole, like, the theme of the entire Bible, the mm-hmm. entire story of God and uh, and his creation? The theme is love, right? Yes. Um, yeah. First John 4, God is love. So, the things that God asks us to do, I don't think he's going to. You know, say, okay, I want you guys to just be oppressed and to be the people that just, sorry, you got the short end of the stick and you guys are just going to deal with it. Mm-hmm. You know, God is always looking out for what is best for us eternally. And that's the key. God, the the uh, the commands that we have, uh, the, I'm trying to think of a different word from command, but just the teachings that we have mm-hmm. in general about how to live life, they're not set there just so God can have enjoyment and pleasure, they're also there for our benefit. So if we follow these things, we take hold of that which is truly life, as we talked about from verse 19 of this chapter. And I think that really, that little phrase, it's not about you, it kind of sums up, again, it brings this together nicely in saying, hey, remember that which is truly life. Remember Mm -hmm. God. Live for Him. You're in a bad situation uh, and whatever it is in life, well, remember God first. Don't make a mess out of everything just for selfish reasons. Remember God. I mean, that's verse 19. Storing up treasure for themselves as a good foundation for the future so that they may take hold of that which is truly life. Yeah. All right, let's 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 go to another one. Uh, number two, I guess. Be content with what you've got. Yeah. You know, uh, very difficult verses to apply in verses 6 through 8 because we are often plagued by verse 10. Right. Um, you know, verses 6 through 8 say we can come into the world with anything. We're going out without anything. So if we got food and clothing, uh, with those things, let's be content. And if you desire money, if you love riches, you're going to fall into all of these these problems. This is one of those things. Now we're talking about present age, and I know we're, getting, we're running up to the end of our time here, so I'm going to be quick. Uh, but if we have stuff for our present age, as in, you know, kind of our modern era, I think this is a huge one, especially in the U.S. Oh, yeah. So yeah. I forget the exact numbers. Uh, if I had time, I'd look them up for you real quick. Um, but the, like, even the poorest demographic in the U.S., 
think we're still in the top like 5% of wealthy world, people on the yeah. planet. Like when we talk about the world as a whole. Yeah. The even, poor in America have sewage, roof over their head, running water, for the most part. I realize yeah. there's some that don't. Um, but on average, like that poorest, you know, the yes. poorest demographic in the U.S. is still like in the top 5% right. worldwide. And again... I think that's five percent. It might be eight percent. I've got the number somewhere, but I can't. Well, I think look you know, just enough. common. We know, we know this. We know this, and we have this phrase: first world problem." Yeah, you know. <laughs> yeah, the Wi-Fi is not working. Yeah, the Wi-Fi is not working. Day is first world problem. <laughs> yeah, and uh, you know, McDonald's put an extra piece of bacon on my burger. <laughs> right. Yeah, we laugh about that. We joke. Yet, people all over the world are in horrible horrible circumstances and we can't be content because right. our Wi-Fi is out or we don't have the newest iPhone or we dropped our phone and the screen's broken. Yeah. Oh, boo-hoo. You know, is the stuff we cry and whine about yeah. are yeah. not things having to do with food and clothing. Right. And again, you ask yourself the question, what is truly life? Yeah. You know, I think it comes back What makes back you to happy? That. Yeah. Yeah. Like, so what's it? I mean, you don't have all this wealth. Or, you know, I'm thinking of someone from this greedy standpoint, like we talked about these false teachers, uh, you know, whatever it is they're reaching for. Is that really, I mean, is that truly life? Is that really what you want to spend all your time chasing? Mm-hmm. And if it is, then, you know, Paul has here, uh, the riches are uncertain. You know, he says, tell the rich of the present age not to set their hopes on the uncertainty of riches. Yes. So, you know, that certainly echoes Matthew 6, 19 to 24, you know, about the treasures in heaven, and the treasures on earth. Yeah, definitely. Where they're Sounds going to decay. just like it. Yeah. yeah, they're uncertain. They're not there. So we should be content with, and Paul says, if I if I just have food and clothing, I'll be content with that. And I think he says the same thing in 2 Corinthians, doesn't he? Mm. I think he says a very similar phrase, if we have food and clothing with this, we will be content. Mm-hmm. Um. Maybe. I think he says, it was, I think he has the same phrase. Maybe, maybe not. Uh, but, I'm having a little brain freeze. Yeah, right I'm in now. a hurry. We're trying to fly through this, so I might be. But either way, it's mentioned here in First Timothy. Well, uh, let's, um, so let's do another lesson here. The love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. Verse 10. Oh, yeah. So it's a root sin, which means greed can create other sins, lead to other sins. Uh, mm mm-hmm. Murder, hatred, uh, divorce, theft. I mean, just about anything can stem from greed. Yeah, Um, you're right. I mean, think of how many... I'm just thinking like how many plots of movies and books and like actual terrible things that have happened to people that have all stemmed from their greed. Yeah, it always starts with greed. Yeah, it just starts off somebody wants to get super rich. And so, well, what do they get involved in? Mm-hmm. Well, they do this, they do that, they do this, or that, you know, and it winds up leading them to a lot of terrible places. When if you just stop and realize, hey, you know, it's not even worth, even if I do get rich, what good is it going to do me? Well, you know, you, you know, I was thinking about this. Uh, we're in Alabama, one of the last states not to have a, a lottery, which I'm sure that's going to change yeah. very soon. Uh, they're talking about it again. It doesn't matter how many times you vote it down, somebody gets back on the ballot again. And, uh, you know, just from what I hear people say, from what I hear Christians say, uh, the lottery is probably going to come into our state very soon. 
And people say, well, what's wrong with gambling? I don't read anything in the Bible about gambling. Well, the, the problem with gambling is greed. Yeah. Because people, you know, as much as people say, and I, I'm sure these people exist, I just have fun throwing a few dollars down and playing blackjack or whatever. I, I go in and I plan to spend this amount of money and so on. I mean, come on. we know that there are compulsions related to gambling. We know that it's fueled by greed in most of the people who do it. Why would you go buy a ticket and stand in a gas station and scratch it off while people are trying to to get in line and pay for their gas? Why would you do that unless you were thinking this may be the big one? Yeah. Not just, man, it's fun to take my quarter and scratch that glue off of that number. That is so much fun. Yeah, just go buy you like a gift card. Yeah. You can do that. Just just make your own. And yeah. then let uh, those of us who will buy, you know, say a bottled water and some aspirin, uh, let yeah. us, let it, let us, I may be getting a little too close yeah. to the something <laughs> yeah. that happened to me the other day in Tennessee, but. So the main problem with it is that holds people up in line. That's the biggest it, problem. That is why gambling <laughs> is wrong. Yeah. If you can find a way to do that, hold us up in line. I just, I know there are people who can, who's gamble and it's fun for them. And they go in planning to lose this much money and they can stop whenever they want to. Fine. I know that most people can't because of greed. Well, if greed didn't exist, then yeah, it's just a game that costs you $50 or $5 or whatever you put into it. But because of greed, it's, it's bad. It's an evil of society. It ruins lives. Yeah. And, and it's not the only thing. The people who win the lottery, it's not just the people who lose the lottery whose lives are... Go go look up people who win the lottery and see if they're happy. Yeah. They're miserable. They're miserable. Yeah. Um, well, so, I, I want to add this to the discussion real quick before we close. There is, you know, along the lines of, of greed and these things that we're talking about, it's not... From what we read here, it's not sinful to be wealthy. Right. It's not sinful to yes. be wealthy. Yeah. And there, you know, there's a, I think there's a popular line of thinking that says, well, if you're wealthy, you're sinning. Because look at all the, these people that need help. The 1%, right now in America, the 1% are the uh, the evil people is the way it's yeah. put. You know? But Paul does say here that these wealthy people, he doesn't say, you know, charge them to, to get rid of, of all that they have, what he says to them is they should do good and be rich in good works and be generous and ready to share. So the instruction for rich people here from Paul basically is, look, and it echoes a teaching of Jesus, to whom much is given, much is required, right? So yes. they have, those of us in the United States, which would include, I think, on a global scale, everybody, you know, those of us who are wealthy ought to be that those are our instructions with what we have we should be willing to share we should be ready to share we should be rich in good works those of us who are you know have more than than the people that don't have as much as us and i think everybody's in that scenario everybody's rich compared to somebody that's what i'm trying to say Mm -hmm. everybody's poor compared to somebody but for those of us who have wealth we should be willing to share, willing to be rich in good works, to do what we can with what we have. And I think it's important to recognize the incredible responsibility 
we've all been given to do good works with the amount of things that have been given to us. Yeah. Well, that's all our time for this episode. And then some. And we finished First Timothy. Uh, it feels good every time we we're able to finish a book. Uh, we're still going to be in the same vein as we go into Second uh, Timothy and Titus. This is kind of like a three-part series, but uh, we, we got another one of the 66 taken care of, yep. put on the shelf. So uh, we're making our way towards our goal. As we do that, it's nice to have a little encouragement. Maybe you could go to iTunes, write a review, or give us a rating. Uh, we'd appreciate that. That helps us climb in, the, climb in the standings a little bit and gets us more exposure out there so other people can hear what we're doing. Uh, we enjoy feedback through email. You can get Andrew at akingsley at arcoc.com. I'm D. Kaiser at arcoc.com. And next week, we get into a new book. We're going to talk about Second Timothy. So I hope that you will join us for that.